welcome to This Week in Sports. Here's your host, The Pony. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 75 of This Week in Sports. I'm your host, The Pody. It is Saturday, November 16th, 2019. I woke up nice and early so I can finish up on my reporting, on my notes, so I can get this episode out there to the masses before the 3.30 college football games, um, and namely the Rutgers and Ohio State game. Okay, so I was already set to go and give you guys the scoop on this Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal that took place in the 2017 season leading up to them winning a World Series. Well, guys, something else has been taken over the top spot um, for this week's biggest news story in and around the sports world, and that would be the fight that took place with about eight seconds left to go in the Thursday night football game between the Browns and the Steelers. So it has been an absolutely epic, chaotic, crazy, call it whatever you want, type of a week in the sports world. I want to get to those two stories, but I have to do my due diligence and get the rest of the reporting out of the way because there is more going on in sports, believe it or not, than just the Astros and the Miles Garrett incidences. So without further ado, I want to kick this thing off and start with some college football because boy, oh boy, I could not have been more wrong with the two big games of undefeated teams last week, starting with the Minnesota and Penn State game, that being number four Penn State undefeated versus number 17 Minnesota also undefeated. That was also a huge Big Ten matchup. I guess I didn't necessarily take into account that uh, Minnesota had a huge home field advantage in this one and they came they came to play. They really showed up. I believe their one receiver had like 200 plus receiving yards. Uh, the Golden Gophers, man, they, they did it. I, I give them credit where credit is due. They get the win 31-26. They were up really early most of this game up early and big and um you know Penn State came back and did what they do and they made this a game but it I mean it was kind of dominating they really they they did it on both sides of the ball um I believe they had uh two interceptions in the first quarter used a very balanced attack moved the ball over 450 I think 460 total yards of offense and if you don't know his name by now he I spoke about it I think a week prior to this one PJ Fleck the head coach there at uh, Minnesota he got the big extension and he is quietly and quickly becoming a household name in college football so that's a great win for Minnesota and you know a, a great a great story thus far for Minnesota and you know if they can beat uh, Iowa they're on the road at number Number 20, Iowa. They are three-point dogs, two-and-a-half, three-point dogs in that one. If they get the win, because they jumped up to number seven, if they can get the win, I think that they have a very good chance to jump a couple of teams. I know there's two Pac-12 teams in Oregon and Utah that are ranked up there as well. Um, Oklahoma plays Baylor today as well. So they have a very good chance to catapult themselves into national title contention and definite college football playoff uh, contention when those rankings come out Tuesday. So great win there for Minnesota and the Golden Gophers. 
and then in the second game at 3.30 that featured a pair of SEC uh, teams, you had LSU beating Alabama by a final score of 46 to 41. Uh, This was a tale of two halves, really LSU dominant in the first half. Um, Alabama looked considerably worse. They were turning the ball over, making some mistakes, stuff that you don't see a Nick Saban led team do, and they were doing it. So you knew in the second half that they had to get things squared away if they were going to get back into this football game and start playing a lot more efficient and cleaner with with the mistakes, the turnovers, and those sorts of things. And you knew Nick Saban was going to light into them at halftime. And of course, Tua coming back with that ankle surgery, that procedure that he had, he didn't quite look the same in the first half. He couldn't really move around. Um, and LSU was really throwing the ball all over the place, over the middle. Uh, they were gashing. Uh, Joe Burrow was really doing a good job throwing the ball down the middle, not afraid to, to make a mistake. And, and they were gashing him. Okay, so he finishes, speaking of Joe Burrow, Heisman, you know, candidate. He It's likely his to win right now, although I, I would put Justin Fields in there as a, I wouldn't say dark horse, but I would not be shocked. Um, every, the talk of the town is Joe Burrow, but watch out for Justin Fields. He's going to have a, huh, no pun intended, but field day today against Rutgers. I'm expecting the final score to be somewhere between uh, 59 and 65 to nothing, somewhere right around that mark, um, because the spread is 52, which I'll get to in a second. But yeah, this all this solidifies Joe Burrow as a as a Heisman finalist, the likely winner. But I'll take Justin Fields um, just because you know everybody's putting their money on Joe Burrow. Um, like I said, Bama turned it around. The second half looked very sloppy in the first. They were down 31, uh, 33 to 13 at halftime. And I was like, wow, you know, I might turn this game off if it, if it turns out to be a blowout and, and they never get back in this game and I might go play some Call of Duty. But that was not the case. Bama came back in the second half. Um, you know, they did a good job. The president was in attendance. So, you know, this was a big game. Donald Trump was there. So that was pretty cool. Uh, to a through for an 85-yard touchdown. I don't understand how this could happen. The game was all but over, and then he throws for an 85-yard touchdown to Devontae Smith with a minute and 21 left that pulls them within five, but a failed onside kick saw LSU get one more first down and end the game. Uh, LSU now has eight wins over top 10 teams in the past two seasons and no longer playing second fiddle in the SEC West or really anywhere for that matter because they did jump Ohio State in the CFP rankings. So they are now number one, Ohio State number two. So I'm hoping that that momentum, um, well, Ohio State getting dropped one spot there will help them um, try to trounce Rutgers into the ground in historic fashion today. That game on at 3.30. Uh, Give me a second because I will get to it in just a minute. We have some news to report out of Arkansas. The Razorbacks, they have fired their head coach, Charlie Morris. Morris was fired after they were blown out last weekend at home 45-19. to The team went just 2-10 and in uh, 2018, which was his first season at the helm there at Arkansas, and they are two and eight this season, so on pace to to win just four games in the past two years. Uh, not very good, although better than Rutgers. Um, okay, so as part of Charlie Morris's contract, the university will owe him a buyout in the range of ten million dollars. Man, it must be nice to be a uh, a football coach in college football these days or anywhere for that matter. 
Uh, tight end coach Barry Lunny Jr. will serve as interim head coach for the final two games. So there you have that. Okay, and then let's preview some of these games going on now. We're coming up today. You have, obviously, the Rutgers-Ohio State game, which is the one that I am going to be watching. I have huge money on this game. Obviously, in favor of Ohio State, I pick against Rutgers every single week. They have, um, you know, they have cashed in all but once uh, where they covered the spread. Otherwise, they do not cover. Ohio State will cover in this game, in my opinion. The spread is historic. I got it. I want to say I got it at 52, I believe. But the spread has, I don't even know what it's up to now, but it was in the middle of the week, it was at 52 and a half. That is historic. That is the largest point spread in Big Ten history. And from what I was able to do with my research and an article I read, I think it's like the third highest ever in the history of college football. And we know it's been going on for 150 years since that uh, victory that Rutgers had over Princeton um, back in the day. Um, it is significant to note, however, Chase Young, Ohio State's probably their best player, big, um, you know, pass rusher, defensive end. He has been given a one-game ban, so he will miss this game, but he should be back next week against Penn State. It didn't stop Ohio State last week against Maryland. That's what I keep trying to tell people. They were still able to win that game, what, by 59 over Maryland a week ago. And what's scary about that is the fact that, in my opinion, um, Rutgers, I, I wish there was a prop bet. I might go look into this if I finish the podcast, which I should before 3.30. I'm going to go look into this. If there is a prop bet where I can place a wager on Rutgers to not score a zero point, I am going to do it because I truly believe that Rutgers will get shut out in this one. The only way I foresee them scoring is if by the third or fourth quarter, it's such a blowout that they put in the freshmen and the the reserve players and Rutgers somehow manages to go and get some points, maybe three or a touchdown or maybe a fluky defensive touchdown, but I don't see it. Maryland lost last week to Ohio State by 59 and Maryland beat Rutgers 48 to 7. This is what I don't understand. Everybody has been on my case about you're an absolute nutcase for taking Ohio State by 52. Everyone thinks that um, in order for this to happen, Rutgers has to get shut out or they cannot score because if Rutgers scores, then, you know, they're basically they're, they're not going to hit it. And they're assuming that Rutgers isn't going to score because the point spread, I believe, is like 55 or 50, 59, which would indicate Ohio State, you know, the spread's 52, that they're going to be doing all the scoring. But I'll give you this one. If Maryland could only score 14 points, why did Ohio State put up 74 or 75, whatever it was, right? Um, or 73. Uh, then... then Yeah, I think it's very, very doable that they hit both the over and Ohio State wins this game. Mainly, I'm I'm in the I'm in it for the spread, obviously, but I do think it's very possible that they hit the over as well. Um, Rutgers has been shut out in one, two, three games thus far this season. They lost to Michigan, fifty-two to nothing. Okay, so if you Michigan is not even close, they're not even on the same level as Ohio State, obviously, because we saw them lose to Ohio State in embarrassing. in 
excuse me, they didn't play Ohio State, but they lost in embarrassing fashion um, to Wisconsin, 35 to 14. So, and, and Wisconsin, obviously, we know they got blown out by Ohio State in embarrassing fashion. That's the game I was thinking of um, with the embarrassing loss. But yeah, so I am very confident in this game, and I will be glued to my television to watch it. Ohio State in historic fashion. I think that they will get the win and they will cover the spread at 52, 53 points. Um, Well, they would need 53 points. So yeah. Um, And so moving on, we've got a big game between Georgia and Auburn um, coming up. Um, I don't believe that game. Yeah, that game's on at 330 as well. You've got number four, Georgia at eight and one. They've moved up into the number four spot. And then you've got number 12, Auburn at seven and two. That should be a very good game. Uh, The spread is two and a half in favor of Georgia. I'm a big Georgia guy, so I'm going to take Georgia in that one. And then um, you got Minnesota, Iowa, another big 10 matchup. Like I said, this is a big game for Minnesota and that game's coming up at four o'clock. Iowa favored by two and a half. I actually like Iowa in this game. I think it's gonna they're gonna keep it low scoring. I think Minnesota coming off that high, that really big victory, upsetting Penn State like they did. Um, I think this is a time where they are going to have a lull and a game where they just don't show up and they fall victim to a very stout Iowa deep. This is no, this is no um, you know, normal, or should I say this is no you know, mid-level team here. This is Iowa. They are ranked at number 20. They have three losses, but they are a very stout defensive team. They have uh, the efficiency to move the football. They're not one of the most explosive offenses in the country, but they will beat you with their defense. So look out for Iowa with the upset here, that game at four o'clock. And then the other game, the game of the week, um, the game that college game day will be at or was at this morning. That is the 7.30 game tonight on ABC between number 13 ranked Baylor at 9-0 and number 10 Oklahoma at 8-1. Oklahoma is 10.5 point favorites in this one, and I like Baylor because it is um, it is in Waco, so it is at Baylor. Uh, and to be 10.5 point dogs, they're getting total disrespect. Oklahoma's defense is atrocious. Their last couple games have come down to the wire. If you look at their uh, previous couple games, they lost to Kansas State. And then last week, they beat uh, Iowa State 42 to 41. So they've had a a tough, a tough couple of losses. And if you look back um, even f- like four weeks ago to that Texas game, they only won that one by a touchdown. So three out of the last four games have been very close, mixed in with a 52-14 win against West Virginia. But otherwise, I think that this can be a very, very close game. And then um, let's just round out the scoreboard here so far as we move on, and we'll talk um, some NBA action after this. But uh so like I said, you've got uh, now number 11, Florida and Missouri. That game's at half, 6-3. to three. Glad I didn't bet on that one with Kelly Bryant there at Missouri. I figured that would be a tough one for Florida. Uh, you've got Wisconsin on top of Nebraska, 27-14. to 14. I think I just saw Scott Frost, head coach of Nebraska, just got an extension there at his alma mater. You've got Oklahoma State routing Kansas, 24 to nothing. Michigan is now up 17-7 to seven on Michigan State. That was one of the ones that I was going to parlay, but I decided to stay away from it. Michigan hasn't covered yet. I think they need another touchdown to cover that spread. You've got Penn State up 20 to 14 on Indiana. That's one I did pick. So um, they're only up six right now. I'm going to need them to do a little bit more scoring 
That game's still in the first half. You got Alabama. That was one of my other picks. The spread was 20. They're up 35-7. to That's looking good. You've got Navy and Notre Dame. Interesting uh, note on the uh, Notre Dame game. This is number 16, Notre Dame hosting number 23, Navy. Both these teams are ranked, obviously. This should be a good matchup coming up at 230. It's the first game since the 1973 or 75 or one, one of those years in the 70s. But it's the first game since that year that Notre Dame has not sold out this game. First time since the 1970s they haven't sold out a game. So that is incredible. I don't understand why that is the case. This, you know, it's not like Notre Dame is playing Rutgers or, or something like that. Uh they're playing a very good seven and one Navy team. They are favored by eight and a half, but it should be a good game. So I'm quite surprised, but just wanted to give you a quick note on that. You've got 10 and 0 Clemson hosting Wake Forest. Clemson favored by 34 and a half and Wake Forest is seven and two. That that's incredible. Uh, you've got Texas, Iowa State. Uh, okay, you get the gist of it. A uh, bunch of games coming up. Uh, you've got the late game, Oregon, number six ranked Oregon, uh, plays at 1030 against Arizona. Yeah, like I said, you get the idea. So, um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. I think I pretty much covered everything. We'll take a quick break. And then when we come back, like I said, we're going to talk some uh, some NBA action, a lot of injuries to get to. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, so we are back and we're going to dive right in and talk about the NBA and a couple of major injuries to get to. It's been the season of injuries. We're like less than a month into the season and there have been a number of high profile players going down with major injuries injury. And we're going to start off with Gordon Hayward, much like Steph Curry, who I will talk about. There's a little update on him. I will talk about him in a second, but much like Steph Curry, Gordon Hayward fractured his hand. This one, his left hand. He exited Saturday's game against the Spurs. He was in the midst of a really great bounce back year, obviously two years ago with the horrific leg injury. He just didn't um, come into his own with the Celtics last year with Kyrie Irving being there and just the, the drama that took place in, in Boston. Averaging a nice 20.3 points this season, uh, he underwent success, successful excuse me, successful surgery on Monday, and he will be out approximately six weeks. His outlook on it was, you know, he's thankful that it's not an injury like he sustained two years ago and that he will be able to come back. And like I said, you know, it, it's for someone like that, you can only, you know, stay positive and have positive thoughts because, yeah, he, he could have easily had no career left after, um, you know, last that injury, you know, in 2017 on opening night with Boston. So yeah, that was a scary one. So yeah, out six weeks and hopefully he can return and help the Celtics team. Next up, we've got a very bizarre story. This really get pushed, got pushed to the bottom of the pile throughout. This happened, I think on like Friday, I never got a chance to report on it. But over the weekend, this was uh, the news started to come out about this, and it really got pushed under the rug when all the Astros stuff came out, and then especially with Miles Garrett, nobody talked about it, and it's kind of it was kind of hush hush anyway. But so here's the story, and here's the scoop. Oh boy, I just got a notification that Tua Tagovailoa exits Mississippi State game on a cart after reportedly injuring his right hip 
with the tide up 35-7. to Oh, boy. I know they said early that Nick Saban, um, his goal was to bench uh, Tua. He wanted to take him out and get Matt Jones in there, I guess, if they got an early lead, just because he wants to give him some rest on that ankle. But wow, now he exits with a hip injury, and you've got to wonder if that's a hit he took or basically if he was maybe favoring that ankle and you know, putting some unwanted pressure on that hip. So that is just, that's breaking news. And, you know, I'll have to keep an eye on that throughout the day. So back to this Dion Waiter story. Um, there was reports that, so they played Phoenix on May, like Thursday. They had to fly overnight to LA for a Friday game against the Lakers. There were reports that on that, um, on that plane flight, that charter, that team flight to LA, that Dion Waiters had a seizure and that he received medical attention when they landed and all that good stuff. That turned out not to be the case. So here's the scoop. Dion Waiters ate a THC-infused gummy, or better known as a weed gummy, before the team flight. He, he claimed he was having stomach pain, so he ate it thinking that it might you know, help him with his stomach pain. Um, because obviously, you know, marijuana, people use it for pain management, medical marijuana, all that good stuff. But instead, after he ate the gummy, he had a panic attack while on board the plane. He did receive medical attention upon landing. He did not play Friday. Dion Waiters has not even barely played this entire season. So the team believes the gummy was given to him by another player. That's the added wrinkle in this. But of course, Dion Waiters, you know, he, he don't want to be no snitch. Because you know snitches get stitches and wind up in ditches. But he uh, would not name names on who gave him the, the weed gummy. The Heat have since suspended waiters 10 games for the incident while calling what happened a very scary situation that could have ended a lot worse. Um, waiters, like I said, he's barely played this season. He was already suspended for what they determined was conduct detrimental to the team for having a disagreement or an argument with head coach Eric Spolstra. He's been active for just two games thus far this season, but has yet to suit up for a single one. Um, and he is in the third year of a four-year $52 million deal that includes a clause that would result in a missed $1.2 million bonus if he misses three more games. So you could say goodbye to that money because with the 10 game suspension, he is of course going to miss three more games. So yeah, he will lose out on the $1.2 million bonus. And this could be the last we see of Dion waiters in a heat uniform. Next up, Chris Middleton. He suffered a leg injury, and he will now miss several weeks. Like I said, a lot of um, injuries going on in, in and around the NBA. Uh, no serious damage, luckily, according to the Milwaukee Bucks. And Middleton reportedly will be sidelined for about three to four weeks with what they're deeming a left thigh contusion, which was suffered during the Bucks' 121-119 win over OKC on Sunday. And then, yet again, another injury to, this time, De'Aaron Fox. He will be out at least three weeks with a sprained ankle. The injury occurred at the end of Monday's practice, so it wasn't even in a game. Um, he will be reevaluated in three to four weeks, and his status will be updated as appropriate. So not really saying much on that. Fox, so far this year, has started nine games for the Kings, averaging 18.2 points, seven assists, and four rebounds per game. Obviously, the speedster uh, guard he does think he's the fastest player in the NBA, but um, yeah, Russ, R Russell Westbrook had a little something to say about that last year. Of course, he comes from uh, Kentucky and uh, Calipari, 
But uh, now, okay, so let's update you on one injury that we already knew about, and that was Steph Curry. Now, reports came out, they did surface that maybe the the Warriors were going to shut him down for the season, kind of doing a tank job here so they could get a high draft pick. Well, Steph Curry said he still plans to play this year, and of course, the Warriors did refute that report that they were going to tank and that they were going to sit him for the whole year. So here's what happened. Um, He does need another operation, Steph, to remove pins from the initial November 1st procedure that he had where they inserted those pins into his hand. That was expected to sideline him three months, I guess. It's probably been extended more closer to like four months now with the season. Um, yeah, so like I said, the report was that they would just mail it in and try to get that high draft pick because they were going scouting college players, all this and that. But the Warriors have refuted that report, and Steph reinforced that sentiment on Monday that no, he does plan to play. Okay, one more injury, I believe, to get to, and um, that would be the uh, Brooklyn Nets' Karis Levert. He is now expected to miss four to six weeks after thumb surgery. Another guy that can't stay that can't stay clean from injury. Uh, he had the horrific ankle injury last year that somehow he bounced back from in no time. But uh, he had to he suffered a thumb injury during Sunday's loss to the Suns. He underwent surgery on Thursday, so a couple days ago, for to repair torn ligaments in his right thumb. And the Nets did not waste much time. They have been absolutely pathetically dismal on defense so far this year they're under 500 there's no excuses they should be winning these games and they're giving up 100 plus every every uh, single time out on the court so the Nets did not waste much time they went out and signed Amon Shumpert to bolster the roster um, you know the former New York Nick the former Cleveland Cavalier he's been all over the map right so yeah that's um, that's the end of the injury news thankfully um the next thing I wanted to talk about was Austin Rivers I planned to play the audio but I just don't have it right now but Austin Rivers man that was funny him and his dad got into it um obviously Rivers is now on the Houston Rockets and Doc Rivers coaches the Clippers so the other night they were getting into it and Doc Rivers was just going at it with the refs and you saw Austin Rivers his son mind you on the court yelling at the refs you know, making the hand gesture to tee him up, tee him up. Eventually, the refs tee up his dad, okay? And that not only that, he's getting the crowd riled up, Austin Rivers, and he says, throw him out, throw him out. So the refs do, in fact, throw out, throw Doc Rivers out of this game. So nice little, uh, you know, father-son uh, rivalry moment there. And I don't know, I can't say if I would do the same thing or not. I mean, the competitive uh, nature um, in me probably says that I would because I would probably do just about anything to win except uh, use electronics to steal signs, <coughs> um, Astros. Um, so yeah, but no. Uh, so that's that was just funny. I thought I wish I had the audio to play for you. I just don't have it. So sorry about that. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of NBA is there was some big news uh, yesterday, no, Thursday night, I believe. Yeah, while I was doing the Glorious House of Gains podcast, I got that notification. Okay, so the Blazers, the, the Trailblazers, the Portland Trailblazers, they have signed Carmelo Anthony to a non-guaranteed contract, 
Melo hasn't played in the NBA since a brief stint with the Rockets to start last season, which we all know that went very badly. After reaching the Western Conference Finals last season, that was Chuck's pick to win it to win the uh, NBA Finals. The Blazers are off to a four and eight start, kind of shaky. Uh, so they decided to go out and sign Carmelo Anthony. It is a little interesting though, and take a listen to what Charles Barkley has to say. He actually thinks that this might be a worse spot for him than the Houston Rockets. Even take a listen to what Chuck has to say. The interested is those guards dominate the ball so much. So he's going to be a spot-up shooter, which he's not used and, to being. And, and I just don't understand how Same he Same thing fit. in Houston. Yeah, I don't think he under, like, it, it, thank you, Shaq. Yeah. It's, it's actually like he's, go, he's going to a worse situation because in Houston they only had one guy who dribble, 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 dribble. <laughs> they got two guys who dribble, dribble. So I, I like <laughs> Yeah, he makes a good point talking about C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard. Although C.J. McCollum, to start this season, man, he has been ice cold. He's on my fantasy team, and he has just been really, really bad to start start off. Um, and like I said, the Blazers under 500. Another team like the Nets that should be better. Uh, they have high expectations. Obviously, they were in the Western Conference Finals, like I said. So who knows? Maybe this works. Maybe this doesn't. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, Non-guaranteed, who knows what that means. This could be a Houston Rockets situation yet again where he plays in a couple games. They realize it's not a good fit, uh, and then they have to part ways yet again. But I think it's good for the game of basketball that we finally have Carmelo Anthony back in the NBA. This guy is a good enough player to where he should be playing. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about too, which I forgot, I could have gotten the audio of this too with all the booing, but the New York Knicks, as bad as they are, I'm waiting for Fisdale to be fired any day. They, uh, Chris Stapps Porzingis made his return to MSG and anytime he touched a ball, he was getting booed. He was ice cold at the beginning of the game, probably very nervous. He did finish with 20 points, I believe, but the Knicks for the second time this year, they get a win. And for the second time this year, they beat the Dallas Mavericks. The only team that they have been able to beat this season in the NBA is the Dallas Mavericks. And I wonder if that's because KP is on the other side of this thing. The other wrinkle in this is this will prove to you how dysfunctional and how bad the New York Knickerbockers are that since the Kristaps Porzingis trade to Dallas last season, every team in the NBA has at least 10 wins except for the New York Knicks. So yeah, that trade did not benefit them. And really, um, it's just a matter of time. It could be literally any day now that we see David Fisdale getting fired. Uh, Just absolutely incredible, in my opinion. Okay, sorry about that. I had some technical difficulties and I lost the audio for a quick second. Hopefully um, that didn't affect too much, but just a couple stats I wanted to throw out there before we move on and talk NFL finally, what everybody tuned in and wanted to hear about. Uh, We have Bradley Beal last night. He recorded his third game with 40 points and 10 assists, passing Gilbert Arenas and John Wall for the most in Wizards history. We also had Rudy Gobert joining Carl Malone as the second jazz player ever to have multiple games of at least 20 points, 15 rebounds, and five blocks. 
So that's pretty cool there. And then James Harden scored 44 points tonight, the same amount as the Pacers' entire starting five. He has scored the same or more than the opposing starting five seven times in his career, tied with LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, and Michael Jordan for second most since the merger. Only Carl Malone has more such games, and it would be nine, nine such games. Just incredible stuff there. And then one last quick one. Um, since starters were first recorded in 1970 to 71, Mo Wagner of the um Washington Wizards. He's the first player with 30 points and 15 rebounds while shooting 85% from the field off the bench in a single game. Just unbelievable there. And then Andre Drummond, last thing, he had his sixth first half double-double last night of the season. No other player has more than one in the NBA, and just the the rest of the NBA combined has seven first half double-doubles. So just absolutely incredible what he's been able to do. Okay, so that's going to wrap this thing up with uh, segment number two, talking about the NBA. Uh, Quick break. When we come back, like I said, we're going to get into that Miles Garrett-Mason Rudolph scuffle at the end of Thursday Night Football, and we're going to break that down and give give you all the juice. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. All righty, who's ready to talk some NFL football? I am. And finally, we're going to get into what took place on Thursday night at the end of the Browns-Steelers game. I promise I'll get to it. I've been teasing it all episode. Well, I've been teasing my two biggest stories all episode, and I've been holding on to them. It's just the way things have sort of fallen into place. But without, you know, um, stretching this out any longer than I already am. Let's dive right into NFL segment and let's start talking football. Okay, we're going to start with Matthew Stafford. His consecutive starts streak has come to an end. He missed, uh, he last missed game action in 2010. So he played 136 straight games before missing last week's game. He will miss this week's game as well. Um, he had shoulder injuries back in 2010, which limited him to just three games. So you had Philip Rivers, who has started 217 consecutive games, and then Russell Wilson at 121. They're the only other quarterbacks to have started 100 straight games, and we just saw Matt Ryan end his streak at 154 games a couple weeks ago. More on him to come. Of course, Brett Favre holds the all-time record at 297 consecutive games started. That is a whole lot of games. Uh, Head coach Matt Patricia, like I said, already ruled him out for tomorrow's game against the Cowboys. So you will see Jeff Driscoll start in his place for the second straight week. Patricia did go on to say that they have a medical plan in place, but wouldn't divulge that information. Stafford is dealing with multiple fractured bones in his back. Next up, Kyler Murray. He broke the all-time rookie interceptionless streak. He broke the rookie record for the longest passing streak without an interception. Previously, Dak Prescott and Derek Carr were tied with 176 passes without an interception. Just weird that they would tie with that type of number. Just one of those weird ones. Uh, Murray's last interception was week four against the Seahawks. And then you have the Cowboys, Robert Quinn, their defensive end. Excuse me, he earned a huge sack bonus in the amount of $878,789. They might have lost Sunday night against the Vikings, but 
Quinn definitely got himself that W. Uh, it came in the second quarter when he took down Kirk Cousins via sack. The bonus pushed his yearly earnings to $10 million, not too shabby. The last time Robert Quinn reached double-digit sacks was in 2014, probably while he was a member of the um, St. Louis Rams at that point. He's now on pace for 15 sacks in 2019. So yeah, deserving of a nice little uh, bonus just coming in at under a million dollars there, a milli. And then next up, the Redskins, they named Dwayne Haskins the starting quarterback for the rest of the season. Really no surprise. They're one in eight and, um, you know, they want to be able to look at what they have moving forward and play their young rookie that they drafted in the first round. It's definitely a vote of confidence from interim head coach Bill Callahan and co. He makes his second career start tomorrow against my New York Jets. In his first start back in week nine, he did have to play a tough Buffalo team where he threw for a modest 144 yards on 15 of 22 passing. Callahan said this will be a great opportunity for him going forward. Um... And it's time to find out if Haskins can be the guy, which I'm not so sure that he can be, although you got to, you know, step back a little bit and and look at the big picture and look at the Redskins. They are one of the worst teams in the NFL. They don't have a, a bunch of great talent on the offensive side of things, so he's not working with much, although he has future Hall of Famer Adrian Peterson uh, that he could just hand the ball off to. But let's face it. Um, I think that he will look decent against my Jets. Their defense has been pretty much anemic for much of the season, but I'm taking the Jets in this one, and I'm so thankful that they were able to bounce back after that horrific loss to the Giant uh, to the um, to the Dolphins. Um, I'm going to get into that in a second, but I'm taking the Jets here because. The Jets can't beat anybody else but the NFC East. Their only two wins this season have come against the NFC East, so I don't see why they wouldn't be able to go and beat Washington, another NFC team, and quite frankly, worse than the two teams they've already beat. So yeah, we'll see um, if Washington can can pull out the win against my Jets. Um, it, it's not a game that a lot of people are going to want to watch, so Red Zone probably won't show it too much. But uh, yeah, like I said, this is all about Haskins moving forward to see if he's going to be the guy because they are going to have a top five pick and they've got to make make sure that they that they pick the right guy in that spot. Uh, moving on, the Eagles they have signed guard Brandon Brooks to a four year, fifty four point two million dollar extension. This keeps him in Philly through the twenty twenty four season. Brooks has made two straight Pro Bowls and ranks within the top three among offensive linemen in a number of key areas. Now listen, if you don't follow the Eagles, if you're not an Eagles fan, you're not going to know all these offensive linemen. I'm a Jets fan and I barely can keep up with the amount of offensive linemen that they've switched in and out. But uh, yeah, Brooks, this guy is one of, if not the best offensive lineman in the game, and I'll tell you why. He's the number one offensive lineman in run blocking via all positions across the offensive line in the entire NFL, so he's number one in run blocking. He is the number one guard and number three overall offensive lineman in pass blocking. He is the number two, he's number two in the NFL among all offensive linemen, allowing just a 1.1% pressure percentage. His 99.4 pass blocking efficiency is good for number two in the entire NFL among all offensive linemen, and he has only allowed four quarterback pressures this season. And this, what makes it even more incredible 
that he's putting up these numbers is he just tore his ACL back in in the team's uh, January playoff loss to the Saints. And yet he has come back from January ACL surgery to start in every single game this season. Just friggin' phenomenal. And that's exactly why he is getting a payday there. These are the type of O-linemen that I wish the Jets had. Guys that can just, you know, bear down in the trenches, overcome injuries, and get back at it and just perform and, and protect the franchise quarterback. The Falcons, uh, this was really the biggest game of the year in terms of upsets. The Falcons, they pull off the biggest upset of the season. I'm sure everybody that picked the Saints in their survivor pool got eliminated. Um, I'm sure it was a lot of uh, people that picked the Saints in their survivor pools and were eliminated, excuse me. But the Saints were 13 and a half point favorites coming into this game and they were blown out by the Atlanta Falcons 26 to 9. The Falcons had just one win going into this game. Uh the Saints had not been held without a touchdown at home, okay, in the Superdome since Drew Brees joined New Orleans in 2006, but it is now the second time this season that that has happened. Although granted, the first time it happened this season it was with Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback when they beat the Dallas Cowboys 12 to 10. But yeah, wow, incredible. And it was also the first time since 2003 that a team with a record of 7 and 1 or better lost to a team with a record of 1 and 7 or worse. Just wow. Uh is one of those games, divisional game, you just never know as Sean Payton said records don't matter when you're playing in the division. Uh, This is an interesting point as to maybe why the Atlanta Falcons had such success in this game, and it's something to look forward to headed into tomorrow against Carolina. But Atlanta uh, head coach Dan Quinn decided to make some changes across his coaching staff. So he reassigned assistant coach Raheem Morris from the receivers to the secondary, and he was very impressed at how well the the secondary um covered up the receivers then allowing the um defensive ends Grady Jarrett all those guys to pass rush and sack Drew Brees I believe six times in that game so yeah um great game plan there by uh, Dan Quinn maybe saving his job we'll see All right, now we could get to um, my New York Jets versus the New York Giants in the Pooper Bowl if you will or the Ooh York uh you know matchup however you want to uh, determine this or deem this or or call it whatever you want to call it. This was a interesting game for many reasons. Not a lot of defense being played. Yes, there was a defensive touchdown, but it was a high scoring 34, 27 game in favor of the jets. They did get the win. I was going in. I had no confidence, obviously coming off the, the, the just dreary, lackluster performance against a Miami Dolphin team that hadn't won a game all season that was tanking, trying to lose, tanking for Tua, whatever you want to call that, and they lost to the Dolphins. I thought it couldn't get any worse, and then it had gotten worse. So then coming into this game, I said, there's no chance we're going to beat the Giants. They're a better football team, yada, yada. Uh, Leonard Williams, who we just traded to the Giants, is probably going to sack Sam Darnold and give him nightmares. Well, none of that really happened. The Jets took an early lead in this one, and the Giants then came back. They took the lead. Daniel Jones looked really good, but then he did what he always does, which is fumble. He leads the league in fumbles. So let me break it down to you. Um, 
like I said, the Giants, they took a late lead in the fourth quarter, but then Le'Veon Bell had a one-yard touchdown run after I believe it was a a penalty, P.I. penalty, in the end zone uh, targeting Robbie Anderson. And uh, the Jets were able to put the ball at the one-yard line, and Le'Veon Bell ran it in for the touchdown. Seems like his first touchdown since week one. Um, And so... To start this thing off, the Jets did look good once again. You know, those first 15 scripted plays or so, they have looked good now three straight weeks. So, uh, excuse me. Uh, Darnold threw a touchdown pass to Jamison Crowder early on, and then he ran for another score himself, which was very good uh, Good to see that they changed some things up there. And then Jamal Adams, my God, he scored on a 25-yard strip sack scoop and score. He blitzed off the edge. He bulldozed through Saquon Barkley, who's supposed to be a phenomenal pa- uh, you know, pass blocker. He steamrolled through him, and he basically just stole the ball from Daniel Jones. The ball never hit the ground he just grabbed it right out of his hands and ran it into the end zone for a huge uh 25 yard touchdown and it was a good response i'll admit from the jets who i did not think had any chance of winning this game but i'm glad to see the bounce back it did snap a three-game losing streak and it doesn't it doesn't look that bad in retrospect looking back considering what the dolphins were able to do um, by going and beating the Indianapolis Colts minus uh, their quarterback, because obviously Brian Hoyer w- was quarterbacking them. But hey, the Dolphins won for the second straight week, so they have two wins. So maybe it doesn't look too, too bad that the Jets lost to a previously winless team because they're not the only ones that lost to them. On the flip side of this thing, the Giants must be really, really bad because four years ago, the Jets beat them then, Now, flash forward to last Sunday, the Jets beat them. They're going to have to wait another four years. They have not beat the New York Jets in eight years, which is wow. Um, So now they got to wait another four years to play the Jets. And all they can do is hope that they they can win some games and kind of build on their season because their season is over. uh, Daniel Jones, like I said, he's got to clean up the fumbles, but he is a very good player. He had a career-high four touchdown passes to each to Slayton, I believe it was, Darius Slayton and Golden Tate. Yeah, they each had two touchdowns apiece, but again, it wasn't enough to prevent the Giants from losing their sixth straight game. I mean, I thought the New York Jets had some difficulties, but wow, the Giants losing six straight games is not a good look whatsoever. Okay, um, and like I said, the biggest, uh, I didn't say, but Excuse me. The biggest disappointment in this game had to be the running games of both teams. I know the Jets' O-line is bad, but Le'Veon Bell has zero lanes to run the ball. I feel bad for him, actually, because they do him no justice. He's getting nothing on the ground, and surprisingly, he got a little bit more than Saquon Barkley in this one, and I'll reiterate what others are saying out there. Saquon Barkley is not right. He, I think they rushed him back from the high ankle sprain. He's never dealt with really an injury in his lifetime, and he's not the same at all. His pass blocking uh, on a couple plays with Jamal Adams breaking through was non-existent and something just isn't right because he had just one yard rushing on 13 carries, easily his worst career game with the New York Giants. So something's got to give there. Um, Okay, let's move on. Let's talk Sunday night. I briefly spoke about it earlier. The 
Minnesota Vikings get their biggest win in the Kirk Cousins era by going into Dallas, into Jerry World, and getting a huge statement, 28-24 to win. A few weeks ago, uh, like four or five weeks ago, I called out the Minnesota Vikings when they were headed to New uh to MetLife to face the New York Giants. I said, this is this is their season. It's on the line right here. They need to win this game, come out, dominate, and then they could finally, you know, turn their season around. And then before that, prior to that, in the offseason, I know I mentioned it on the Glorious House of Gains podcast, probably around preseason football games. I said that I think Minnesota is going to have a very nice year, and I did, con- I did say that they were a playoff team, and they have since gone on to prove me right thus far, so good job for them. Dalvin Cook, he ran for 97 yards, including the go-ahead touchdown on fourth down on the final play of the third quarter. He also had a huge amount of... Um, Receiving yards, 86, um, not a huge amount, but, you know, that's a lot for a running back. And, you know, it it helped propel them on a couple of key uh, drives, if you will. And uh, so he now coming into, obviously, we had the Thursday night game. So Nick Chubb just passes him by like 12, 13 yards or something to that effect. But going into this week in the NFL, it is what, week 11, I I believe. Yeah, going into week 11, Prior to Thursday night's game, Dalvin Cook led the NFL in rushing. Well, he also had 183 yards from scrimmage in that Sunday night game against the Cowboys to propel him into the league lead in that category with 1,415 total yards from scrimmage. So yeah, um, Dalvin Cook is just having an all-pro caliber type of year. The Vikings are now in prime playoff position, sitting at 7-3, and and one thing to note here, this is kind of the state of the Vikings over the last couple of seasons. They beat, they finally beat a winning team on the road for the first time in almost two full years. Wow. Uh, tough to believe there. They were previously 0-9-1 in their uh, previous 10 such games. The other um, the other big story in this one would be Ezekiel Elliott, the star running back there for the Cowboys. He got totally outplayed by Dalvin Cook in this one, just 47 yards on 20 carries after previously having three straight 100-yard games. It um, prompted, I know, Skip Bayless to call him out. And then Ezekiel Elliott's mother was calling him out, something like that. I I didn't really pay attention to it. But yeah, uh, I know Skip Big Cowboys fan was not happy with Ezekiel Elliott. The Cowboys are now tied with the Eagles atop the NFC East. They should have bragging rights because of the head-to-head victory, um, but they're both 5-4, and I believe, on the year. Okay, let's talk about the craziest game of the year. Besides the Thursday night game, which was pretty crazy, the Monday night football game was epic. It was absolutely just fantastic to watch. Not if you uh not if you were on my fantasy team because uh that was a tough one to swallow. I was on my toes the entire time because I had a 96% chance of winning my fantasy matchup and staying um one lo- with one loss I'd move to 9 and 1 and stay in first place and I was playing the second place guy who had um a 7 and 2 record okay and I was 8 and 1 and he had a bunch of guys on by and I thought for certain I was going to beat him I go into Monday night he had about four players playing he had Jason Myers he had Debo Samuel he picked up Hollister the tight end for the Seahawks last minute and he had Chris Carson and Lo and behold, thanks to that game going to overtime, 
I got screwed over at the end of the game in overtime, and I lost my fantasy matchup by about five points when I had a 96% chance of winning. So I fell to eight and two. He improved to eight and two, and he leapfrogged me for first place because of the amount of points that he has versus mine. He has more points than I do. So I am in a must win scenario because if I lose again this week, I could drop out of the uh, first or second place buy that we get in, in the playoffs there in the first round. So it's must win. But this game was just unbelievable. The Seahawks knock off the previous unbeaten um, 49ers, which by the way, little consolation, thankfully, I decided to parlay because on FanDuel, you can now actually do parlays with the same game. That was my only gripe when they first launched these services, FanDuel and DraftKings. You could not say bet on the Seahawks to to win and bet the over in the same game. Well, they can na- they now allow you to do that. So I threw a little money on the Seahawks to win straight up because um, I was confident in them. And then I also took the over in this game, which for a long time, it looked like, wow, the Seahawks were going to win, but they're not going to hit the over. The 49ers came all the way back. There was a bunch of points being scored. And eventually they go to overtime. And what we saw in overtime was just as crazy as what we saw in in. in Throughout the regulation, we saw uh, Russell Wilson threw an interception in the red zone for probably the first time this year, uh, a missed field goal by San Francisco, and then a very questionable call by Kyle Shanahan. I'll get to that. Uh, Jason Myers ended up kicking a 42-yard field goal after Chase McLaughlin, who was by the way, picked up off the streets to kick for Robbie Gold, who is hurt. And he made about every single kick, except unfortunately the one in overtime, which cost his team the game. But, uh, the Seahawks do give the 49ers their first loss, so that division tightens up the NFC West there. Uh, even Russell Wilson, who said it was the craziest game he's ever been a part of, and he's been a part of some crazy ones with the Super Bowl, and they had another Monday night game, I believe, against... Um, Again, was it might have been I forget, but there was another really crazy game between the Seahawks on a Monday night or a Sunday night game. I think it was a Monday night game a couple years ago where we had multiple blocked field goals at the end of the game in overtime or something, and they were like chip shot field goals. It was a crazy wild game involving the Seahawks. So he's been involved in a lot of crazy games, and he says this one trumps all of them. Uh just wild. My, Jason Myers, yeah, like I said, he was the hero kicking the game winner. It's the second straight overtime win for the Seahawks, who now sit at 8-2, and two, another really good football team. So yeah, I did win some money, but ultimately I would have rather won my fantasy matchup. Okay, here we go, guys. The moment you've all been waiting for, we're going to get into it, and we are going to talk about, finally, what exactly took place Thursday night that everybody is talking about. We've got one hour till the Rutgers game, so I'm doing good on time. All right, so the Browns beat the Steelers 21-7. There was chaos in the final 10 seconds of this game. Thankfully, I decided to go into this week. I decided to forget about last weekend, last week in fantasy, and start anew this week. Well, I was stuck between, I have two defenses, the Chicago Bears, who have been just a shell of their 2018 self. So I did not want to play them, have no confidence in them. And then I have the Cleveland Browns defense, which I almost played them last week. I almost played the Giants last week, but I ended up playing the Bears because Matthew Stafford was the late scratch. Okay, they did fine. They got me eight points. Not enough because I lost by five, right? Whatever. So I'm done with them. So I decided, you know what? I decided 
I figured a long time ago that I'm going to stop being an idiot. And I decided to no longer bet on Thursday night games because they suck. You can predict just about every single one. And they're usually low scoring games, right? So I was like, what do I have to lose with the Browns? I already believe, I actually believed going in, I picked them to win this game against the Steelers. The Steelers are not a good football team. They have a million injuries. Mason Rudolph is at quarterback. I don't know how they had won, what, four or five games in a row. And we're sitting at like five and four. Excuse me. So I was like, I'm going with the Browns defense. Let's do it. The Browns defense dominated this game, and I got a surprising 16 points, although I should have had more because they intercepted Mason Rudolph four times, and one of them was returned to the five-yard line. So if I could have just got a touchdown out of one of those, it would have been great. They got a couple of sacks right at the end of the game, which gave me a couple extra points. So I... I hit a slam dunk home run. That was a grand slam in my opinion because um, that was their highest output, 16 points for the season. And anytime I could get double digits out of my defense, I will take it because it's been few and far between this year with my Bears and the other teams I've plugged in at defense. So good start to my defense, uh, to my fantasy matchup this week. Um, Okay, so let's get into this exactly what happened. Eight seconds or so. The Steelers are just trying to get out of there. They're going to lose the game 21-7. So Mason Rudolph throws a little screen pass. Miles Garrett tackles him and doesn't let up, and he takes him to the ground, and they're on top of each other well after the play. Okay, so what happens is uh, Mason Rudolph is trying to push his helmet push Miles Garrett's like in the face, like try to get his helmet off of him, just trying to get him off of him, it looks like. Miles Garrett takes exception and starts trying to grab Mason Rudolph's helmet and then takes it off of his head. So Mason Rudolph gets up and goes after Miles Garrett. One of his O-linemen gets involved in, in this as well, in DeCastro maybe. I know um, Pouncey's in there. I'll get to that in a second. And so uh, when Rudolph goes after Miles Garrett, this is now spilled towards the end zone. Miles Garrett whips that helmet around and slams it, hits Mason Rudolph in the head with his own helmet. Absolutely disgusting. It, there's no place for that in any sport whatsoever. And it was one of the craziest, wildest fights we've ever seen. And what's even worse about this is that Mason Rudolph just a couple weeks ago suffered a horrific concussion where he was knocked unconscious against the Ravens and he made a quick recovery and it's very uh it's very fortunate that he was not severely hurt in this game so after he gets hit um Pouncey his O lineman starts kicking him uh and and, and they go down like there's ki- a kicking going on and, and punches being flown uh thrown yeah so Pouncey tries to punch him then it goes to the ground and they're kicking and it was wild and then you have um the one guy on the Browns came running in from behind and he just he just decks Mason Rudolph, blindsides him, just right in the back and knocks him to the ground, like kind of whiplashes him down. So yeah, that's essentially what happened. I will break it down further after you take a listen to how it sounded live. It's a little, it's almost two minutes, but bear with me because initially the announcers don't see it. And then when you watch the replay, that's when you could kind of get the sense of how bad this was just by the reaction because announcers, they don't react like this usually. So take a listen to this. It's pretty intense. There's a flag as whoa, hello, whoa. Uh, Mason Rudolph got into it. Get out of there! What in the world? 
believe Miles Garrett. They'll be swinging a helmet. Yeah, there'll be some ejections coming out of this. There may be suspensions. That's right, suspensions. Garrett. That was well after the play. And here it is. He tackled Rudolph. Rudolph didn't like the way that he was tackled. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. Oh. Oh, my goodness. Rips the helmet off Rudolph's head and then eventually swings it and hits him in the head. And then Ogan Joby comes up and hits Rudolph from behind. Beyond words, oh, Joe. Gosh, that's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Yeah, it's one of the worst things you will ever see. And the NFL acted very swiftly in this situation because on Friday morning, less than 12 hours later, Brown's defensive end, Miles Garrett, was suspended indefinitely, which means for the rest of this season, including playoffs, should the Browns make it, and possibly even longer into next season. There were three ejections in that game. Um, excuse me. Um, Miles Garrett, Pouncey got ejected, and then the guy on the Browns that came from behind and slammed Mason Rudolph to the ground. Just, just an incredible scene uh, unfolding there, and it's it's a shame because it it really shifts away from the Browns getting a key win to keep their playoff hopes alive. And it, it's typical of the Browns because of you know some of the stuff that's been going on with them in recent weeks. But first, I do want to uh, play you a clip of Mike Tomlin, and then I'm going to play a clip of Mason Rudolph both after the game. Mike Tomlin was not having any of it. I'm sure he was heated, and he wanted to probably get his hands around the neck of uh, Miles Garrett. So when asked about this, here's what he had to say. I'll keep my thoughts to myself. You guys saw what happened at the end. You have no comment about it? That's exactly what I said. I got no comment. Have you ever seen anything like that at the end of the game? No more questions regarding that because I'm saying nothing. Yeah, you could tell how ticked he was. And then so here is um, Mason Rudolph. And I don't want to take away from the fact that I know Miles Garrett, he spoke to the media after the game as well. And he said, you know, he lost his cool and he shouldn't have done that, all that type of stuff. But uh, I don't have the audio for him. But here is Mason Rudolph after the game. He is a little heated too. And he's making some snide comments. Here's what Mason had to say. Do you think he should be suspended for the rest of the I, I, don't, I don't know what the rules are. I don't know. I know it's Bush League. I know he's, you know, total coward move on his part. You know, I, I, I mean, it's, it's okay. I'll, you know, I'll take it. I'm not, not going to back down from any bully out there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah, so... um 
couple things to take away from this. A lot. This stirred a lot of controversy on Thursday night and fr- into Friday, mostly because <clears throat> a lot of people. Uh, I know Josina Anderson, sorry to put her on blast, but I'm not the only one doing it. She tweeted out that she knows Miles Garrett and this is um this is unusual behavior of his so that she so she could only imagine that something significant was said by Mason Rudolph, i.e. she is, you know, inferring that maybe Mason Rudolph said the N-word and that made him lose his mind. Then other people were trying to say, well, whoa, 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 it doesn't just have to be the N-word that would set him off. So kind of defending Miles Garrett in a sense, her tweet was since was deleted pretty quickly after that. But here's why I don't believe he said something to that effect. He plays the, this game with any... Listen, I, he's no he's no Riley Cooper saying the N-word at a concert or whatever. Mason Rudolph plays this game with a lot of of minority players, a lot of black teammates. Why would he say that? And even if, and so basically if he did say that, I'll ask you this. If he said that, then why did his teammate who was black in Pouncey go ballistic after Miles Garrett in defense of his quarterback? And I believe he did get a three game suspension. Mason Rudolph got nothing and Miles Garrett suspended indefinitely. That's my point there. So yeah, a lot of people were taking sides on this. They said it's, it's, absolutely ridiculous that Miles Garrett should be suspended for the whole season and so there was it was extremely um uh, you know both sides people very passionate about this but uh, mostly everybody is is in consensus uh, of the fact that this was one of the most outrageous uh plays and fights you will ever see on an NFL field where he f- took a, a, a he assaulted him with a deadly weapon because if there was no one else around and he just kept beating Mason Rudolph with that helmet, yes, he could have used that as a weapon to kill him. And suppose, yeah, I get it, the punishment must fit, you know, the the act, and he didn't murder him, so he's not going to go to jail or anything like that. And then there was talks of Mason Rudolph should should file, you know, press charges against him and yada yada. That's not happening or anything, but the NFL is going to handle it. So just a lot to take, you know, take into consideration there. And I can't spend too much time on it because I do have to get to the story with the Astros, which is going to take up some time and we're already running over on this. So, um, what I did want to say is it takes away from the Browns win. The Browns have had a tumultuous few weeks. Of course, you had last week with the player, um, on the Browns or two weeks ago with the player on the Browns, threatening to kill people they had to cut him and then um this was a little bit more under the radar but Antonio Callaway their wide receiver they let him go as well because he had already been suspended earlier this year for for a couple of for for a bunch of games he's now facing a 10 game suspension uh just a lot of stuff going on with him basically um Callaway was a healthy inactive for Sunday's win over the Bills last week because he showed up late to the game. His replacement in the lineup, Rashad Rashad Higgins, ended up catching the game-winning touchdown. So, yeah, karma. Um, He was late again this week to practice, apparently, or late... Yeah, late get what to to meetings, whatever. He has been suspended ten games because why, Stephen A. Smith? Stay off the week. Oh. Duh. 
Yeah, Antonio Callaway cannot stay off the weed. He has had an issue with this. He was suspended coming into the um, season by uh, in his rookie year, and he had issues at Florida, and that's why he was a later round pick, and they decided to take a flyer on him, and he has just failed every attempt. He doesn't get the message. He, uh, he was suspended 10 games by the league for that reason alone, and he appealed, and it was denied, so he is now a free agent or when he clears waivers, whatever, and he uh, was going to struggle to find another team that's going to take a chance on him because he had not one chance, not two chances, but like three and four and five chances with the Cleveland Browns, and they said enough is enough. But I think a part of that is that since Freddie Kitchens came into uh, his position as head coach with the Browns, he wanted to have a different air about the team. He wanted to be, you know, a roughhousing team that goes out there and, and doesn't take anything um, doesn't take anybody's crap. And with that, I think he's become a little lackluster and a little uh, more relaxed when it comes to his players. And I think his players are trying to push back and think they can take advantage of him in that organization. So just a whole mess, it takes away from the win and it's just not a good look. All right. The other big news coming down in the NFL is right about now, 15 minutes away, the NFL will be holding a workout for Colin Kaepernick just outside of Atlanta at the Falcons training complex. This is sort of a big story that came out a couple of days ago, uh, foreshadowed by the uh, you know all all this stuff that's going on. Uh, initially, there were ten teams that were planning to attend, but that number has now skyrocketed to around twenty four teams, including San Francisco, his former team that he played for, uh, which is an interesting one. Kaepernick was not provided a list of wide receivers who would be in attendance, so he is in fact bringing in former NFL wide receivers who he has presumably a relationship with, and they volunteered actually to fly in on their own dime. Okay, so uh, I think Bruce Ellington is one of them, former 49er, they played together. And then former NFL head coach Hugh Jackson will lead the drills and former NFL coach Joe Philbin will be in attendance to assist. Uh, this is going to be a pro day style workout. So Kaepernick will be in shorts and a t-shirt and I think he will look good. Um, I don't like him as a person for what he stands for and all that good stuff, but do I believe that he deserves to be a part of the NFL and on an NFL roster? Absolutely. Whether this is just optics, whether it's just the NFL saying, look, we're, we're helping you the best way we can to get you back in this league after everything you've done. Uh, but it could be just one of those things where they're throwing it out there because they know nobody's going to sign him or they're just trying to say, hey, look, we're, we did our part. Sorry, nobody wants you. We can't do anything else about that. All right, that was a long 36-minute segment, 37 minutes now. I will preview the uh, week 11 by giving you three picks that I like this week, starting with the New York Jets at plus two. I don't know how they're underdogs um, in in Washington. Uh, that's a little confusing to me. I get it. It's the Jets, but Washington is is worse than them. Uh, then I love me some New Orleans Saints at minus five and a half, and then give me Kansas City over the Chargers at minus four on Monday Night Football. I know the Chiefs haven't really been... <laughs> able to cover much and they kind of screwed me a bunch of weeks in a row but I do like them in this one to cover at minus four um Pat Mahomes coming back off that injury they lost a tough one against the Ryan Tannehill led Titans but he put up monster numbers and I expect they will only get stronger okay guys so that's gonna wrap this thing up for our NFL segment I've got to come uh take a quick break 
We'll come back. I'm going to talk some college basketball, some baseball, and get you guys out of here because this is taking way too long. So quick break, and I'll see you on the flip side. Okay, I'm back. We're going to dive right in and start with college basketball. We are over an hour into this, and I've really got to speed it up because I don't want it to be longer than an hour and a half. So we're going we're gonna to just bulldoze right through this. College basketball, we'll start with Evansville stunning number one Kentucky, 67 to 64. It is the first time an AP number one Kentucky team has ever lost a home game to an unranked non-conference opponent. They had been 39 and 0. It's Evanville, Evansville's first road win over an AP ranked team in program history. What's more incredible is that Kentucky paid Evansville $90,000 to show up to Rupp Arena only to get their butts beat by this team. And they were also Evansville was finished uh, preseason. They were picked, excuse me, to finish eighth in their conference. Just unbelievable. And I believe um, the head coach at Evansville is a former Kentucky star in Walter McCarty. And he has to feel awesome about that one as his team gets a huge win after coming in as 25 point dogs. Just incredible. Listen to the final moments as the Evansville Aces knock off number one Kentucky. He throws it into Maxie with five seconds. Maxie with four. Three seconds. Elevates on a three. It's an air ball. Wow. And the Aces have gone the road to Rupp Arena in Lexington, Kentucky and stunned the number one Wildcats 67-64. They shot college basketball on this Tuesday night. What a win for Coach McCartney and his return to Kentucky. Yes. Yeah, just incredible, incredible victory there. And then moving right along, uh, Michigan State beat Seton Hall the other night, a pair of top 15 teams. Freshman Malik Hall hit a layup with 26 seconds to play and scored all 17 of his points in the second half after not scoring in the team's previous two games to start the season. Uh, So he was the unsung hero there. Michigan State overcame a late five-point deficit and rallied to a 76-73 win. It was the second game for Cassius Winston after the passing of his brother. Uh, So, yeah, tough one there. Um, Also, uh, Miles Powell for Seton Hall on the flip side of that had 37 points. Tom Izzo praised him, saying one of the best players he's ever coached against. This all after he was expected to not even play in the game because he was dealing with, I believe, an ankle injury. So, so yeah, that should be uh, these two teams should be ones to look out for come March. And then James Wiseman, last point I want to make here. James Wiseman declared ineligible for Memphis. This story broke earlier in the week as well. Wiseman was under investigation after his family reportedly accepted an $11,500 um, loan, if you will, from Aunt, uh, from Penny Hardaway in 2017 to help with the relocation costs because Wiseman was in the process of transferring to Memphis East High School, where Hardaway happened to coach that season. Well, that finishes up in 2017. Then in 2018, okay, Hardaway was hired at Memphis, which is his alma mater. Wiseman is then recruited to Memphis for this season, coming in as a freshman. Here's the problem, though. Hardaway's charity toward Wiseman's family wouldn't have been a problem 
but the NCAA deemed Hardaway a booster for donating $1 million to Memphis in 2008. So that's the wrinkle here. Wiseman cannot play in any more games until the NCAA reinstates him. I know he went to a judge, got an injunction, and he played in the one game, but now he must wait. Okay, um, that's it for college basketball. That's pretty much all I wanted to discuss. Let's get into the crux of this thing. Let's talk baseball. All right, Jordan Alvarez and Pete Alonzo are your you, your excuse me rookies of the year. You have Jordan Alvarez of the Houston Astros in the American League and Pete Alonzo in the National League. Of course, they were both deserving. Pete Alonzo broke the rookie record for home runs with 53, and Jordan Alvarez just hit hit the lights out when he was brought up uh, for from the uh, from the minors, two young guys. I think uh, Alvarez is 21 and Pete Alonso is still 24. Okay, the Giants have found a new manager. They hired Gabe Kapler to be their new their new man at the helm. Kapler was fired after two seasons in charge of the Phillies. He was just the manager of the Phillies, so just fired at the end of the 2019 season, in which the team hovered around 500 despite an effort to break through in the NL East. Yeah, had a couple tough years. His first year, they were good, and then they fell off at the end, failed to miss the playoffs. And then this year with Bryce Harper, they were expected to do even more, and they couldn't make the playoffs. So he finished his tenure with a 161 and 163 record with the Phils. Giants president of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, worked with Kapler when the pair were with the Dodgers. So that's the connection there. From 2014 to 2017, Kapler was the team's director of player development, while Zaidi was general manager under Andrew Friedman. Then you have Jacob deGrom winning his second straight Cy Young Award. He became just the 12th pitcher since the Cy Young Award was introduced in 1956 to win in consecutive seasons. The last back-to-back winner was Max Scherzer in 2016 and 2017. Um, Scherzer and Hyunjin Ryu were the other two finalists. DeGrom started the season slow, posting a 4.85 ERA in April, but he led Major League Baseball with a 1.89 ERA over his final 23 starts and finished with a 2.43 ERA overall, second only to Ryu's 2.32. I would have given it to Ryu, but when you look at the scope of this thing, Ryu had a phenomenal first half of the year and fell off a little bit. DeGrom's second half of the year was friggin' phenomenal, so I guess that weighed a little bit more heavily, and you can't go wrong. He is probably one of the top two or three best pitchers in all of baseball. Um, I did fail to talk about the managers of the year, so let me get to that after I tell you that Justin Verlander won the Cy Young for the American League. It is his second career AL Cy Young award. So um, he edged out teammate Garrett Cole by 12 points. That is significant because it is the first time teammates have ever received all 30 first and second place votes. Their former teammate Rays pitcher Charlie Morton did finish in third place. Verlander was absolutely dominant in his age 36 season. He led Major League Baseball with innings pitched at 223 and finished with exactly 300 strikeouts. He also pitched his third career no-hitter, won 21 games, posted a 2.58 ERA, and for the second straight season posted the best whip in Major League Baseball at .803. So just phenomenal, phenomenal. Okay, let me talk about the managers of the year for a second. You had Mike Schilt in the National League for the St. Louis Cardinals. They had a great season, came up short, but just a great season. 
He became the first manager to ever win that award, having never played professional baseball, so that's awesome. And then on the flip side, you had Aaron Boone win the AL Manager of the Year, right? No, you didn't, because it went to Rocco Baldelli of the Twins, a first-year head coach, first-year manager with the Twins, and he gets the nod for manager of the year. Why? I have no idea. They won 102 games, won their first division title since 2012 or 2014. Um, I'm pretty sure that Aaron Boone did a better job managing his team. I don't think any manager in baseball did a better job than Aaron Boone did with the Yankees. And I will not just be saying that because I'm a Yankee fan. I can't spend a lot of time on this, but here you go. I'll just break it down. Okay. Aaron Boone swept Rocco Baldelli's twins in the ALDS. Enough said right there, right? He won. He became the first manager to have back-to-back 100-win seasons in his first two years managing the club. Okay, check, did that. He had a record 30 players on the IL this season. No team has ever had that many players go on IL, and he still won over 100 games and went to the ALCS. I don't understand it. I think it's more Yankee bias here because they, sh- they, they, the, the, whoever is voting these baseball writers, it's total Yankee bias in my opinion. I'm sorry, it is okay. Miguel Andujar should have run one Rookie of the Year last season, and he didn't. It's just a number of things that lead me to believe that it's Yankee bias because you'll never convince me that Aaron Boone did not do a better job managing his team. And don't give me the payroll stuff because Giancarlo Stanton played in less than 20 games and was non-factor in the postseason, and he's always getting hurt, and most of that team was hurt with the payroll. So don't give me that stuff because it's ridiculous. Ridiculous. And then the fact that, uh, oh, more Yankee bias. Uh, What's his name? Um... DJ LeMay, who finished fourth in the MVP race. Fourth. Okay, Marcus Simeon finished ahead of him, which is a joke. So let's talk about that right now. Let's let's actually get into the um, the MVP awards that were handed out yesterday or two, two days ago, I believe. Uh, we'll start with the NL. You have Cody Bellinger winning the MVP at 23 years old. He received 19 of 30 first place votes. Christian Yelich of the Milwaukee Brewers, who won the MVP in 2018, received 10 votes to finish in second place. Anthony Rendon received one vote and finished in third place. Bellinger finished the season with a 305 batting average, 406 slugging percentage, and a 629 on-base percentage to go along with 47 home runs, 115 RBIs, 95 walks, and 15 stolen bases. I mean, we knew he was going to win this award for a long time coming. And then on the American uh in the American League, we had Mike Trout winning his third MVP. He continues to be the best player on the planet that nobody talks about. He received 17 of 30 first place votes, while Astros third baseman Alex Bregman received the other 13. Trout held on to win the award despite missing the final three weeks of the season with injury. He now joins a very select group of players. Barry Bonds leads the way with seven. That's the most all-time MVPs. Nine other players have won three times. With Trout just being 28 years old, guys, you've got to bet on him that he's going to win maybe two, three, or four more and catch Barry Bonds. I mean, I wouldn't put it past him. He's still very young and to have, and he's finished like, you know, top three in seven of the last eight MVPs or just something ridiculous. I, I mean, he he has been a, a, the best player in baseball for 
almost a decade now. Just just unbelievable. Uh, and then real quick, uh, we had Will Smith signing with the Braves. The Braves desperately needed bullpen help, and Will Smith needed a new home, so this was a very good match. He signed a three-year deal for $39 million with a club option for 2023 that would pay him $13 million. He had 34 saves, was an all-star last year, posted a 2.76 ERA and 63 appearances for the Giants. So though that'll help bolster their, their um, bullpen there. The Pirates, they went out and hired their new GM, and it's going to be Ben Charrington, former Red Sox GM that won a World Series with them in 2013. The Pirates did fire Neil Huntington in October after 12 seasons with the team, and they 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 fired Clint Hurdle as well in a huge overhaul. So they had put their managerial search on hold until they found a new GM. So now expect Charrington, his first move is going to be to go out there and find a new uh, manager for the team. Okay, now, guys, I know that was a little bit quick. I rushed through that. Here we go. The biggest story in sports this week is the Houston Astros sign stealing. Wow, this took a turn. Okay, all throughout this postseason, I've been saying that the Houston Astros are stealing signs from the Yankees. Okay, um, Carlos Beltran had made it known to the Yankees that players were tipping pitches or whatever, this, that. Okay, uh, Bre- Alex Bregman, uh, they, they kept reporting. Um, Tom Verducci kept reporting at these games that, oh, how good Bregman is at stealing signs. And I think the Fox crew even asked uh, A.J. Hinch about it. And I'm thinking, there's no way this guy is this good at stealing signs. I don't understand what's going on. Okay. They said maybe James Paxson was tipping his pitches the first go around. I'm saying to myself, this can't make any sense. So here is what happened. I believe on Tuesday it was, The Athletic reported via one of the former Houston Astros starting pitchers, now of the uh, Oakland Athletics, who who did throw a no-hitter this year, Mike Fires. okay? He leaked this story because he said that he was upset because you're ruining players' lives. These young pitchers are coming up to the major leagues and they're getting shelled and destroyed for a bunch of runs and it ruins their psyche. It ruins their chances at a career because then they get maybe sent down and they're never the same. They never make it to the pros because this is a very tough sport. All these things could happen. So that's why he decided to leak this story. Okay. So there, this was an elaborate sign stealing scheme that involved cameras, electronic transmissions, and trash cans during their 2017 world series run. There's no doubt in my mind that they were able to win this world series because they use these tactics. They straight up cheated. Okay. The story uh, yeah, I said that. Um, so on Wednesday, there was a little bit... Okay, so let me let me go over exactly how they did this. They positioned a camera in center field, okay? That fed to a, a TV monitor in the hallway just outside the dugout because you're not allowed to have that in the dugout. So that's a little gray area there, okay? And then they would, fu- they would get the signs and they would take a bat and they would bang trash cans super loud and... They would do that when it was an off-speed pitch, so the batter knew, okay, off-speed pitch is coming, and then they could wait back and they can crush it or sit on it, whatever. So that's how they started doing it, okay? And there's video evidence. If you go to JohnBoy underscore on Twitter, he posts a bunch of stuff. He's he's a good follow, and you could see him uh, posting those videos. You could hear the trash, the banging of the cans in the background. Okay, add another layer, a wrinkle of this. On Wednesday, these same reporters from The Athletic, Ken Rosenthal and Evan uh, Drelich, uh, they reported that current managers of two other MLB teams joined A.J. Hinch in devising the scheme. 
Alex Cora being the first one, the former bench coach for the Houston Astros, and newly hired Mets manager Carlos Beltran both played a key role in devising the sign-stealing system the team used this that season in 2017. Okay, according to that report, a cap, yeah, that's when they said that that was when the camera would be in center field and they would get the signs and bang the. Uh, okay, so I got ahead of myself there. So Astros players and employees with with. Uh, they would find out, they would, I guess, bang a code on the trash cans for hitters to hear uh, that re- related to what pitch to expect. I didn't I didn't know all that, but I thought they were just off-speed pitch. They would just bang the trash can. But this is apparently, if, if it went that elaborate and they were, you know, banging twice for a, um, you know, for a curveball or three times for a changeup or something, then that's pretty crazy. Uh, so yeah, very interesting, but it gets worse. There is another report um, from the athletic that was published earlier in November, and it was unrelated totally to the science uh, stealing controversy that just came out. Um, but it, it reports that Carlos Beltran had developed a reputation as one of the best in the game at stealing signs. Like I said, he was an advisor to Yankees GM Brian Cashman, and he brought it to the Yankees' attention multiple times that they're tipping their signs. Okay? So. Another wrinkle to this story, though, it gets even better, is that Trevor Plouffe, who is a former big leaguer, wrote on Twitter that in the World Series, when the stadium noise was too loud to hear the banging of the trash cans, the Astros had someone watching a live feed and then relaying the pitch calls via earpiece to the bullpen catcher. So the bullpen catcher would be out in like right center or center field. And when it was a fastball, he would put his hands up on the fence. And when it was an off-speed pitch, he would put his hands down. There's also video. You could go back and look at John Boy's Twitter and elsewhere. Uh, You'll see batters quickly glance over to right field before the pitch. Stealing signs? Maybe. Cheating? Absolutely. Okay, so that's that. How do you prevent this from happening? Of course, Major League Baseball is now investigating it, and the Astros are in deep doo-doo. Alex Cora especially should be shaking in his boots because he's not protected in this because his name was leaked out there. So what does that mean for the Red Sox going forward? I have no idea. And Carlos Beltran played a big part in devising this. We know that now. He This could be a PR nightmare for the Mets, but luckily he was a player at the time. Luckily for his sake, he was a player, so he would be protected under the umbrella of the uh, MLB Players Association and their union. So they, have, they will be able to protect him there. So I don't think anything will come of that in terms of, you know, maybe the Mets backing out of his deal and not naming him their new manager or, or firing him. I couldn't see that happening. But um, as far as maybe a suspension or a huge fine levied, absolutely. Because if, I, if I'm if i Major League Baseball and I find out that this is all true and they did this, then A.J. Hinch has to be, has to be suspended for the entire, the entirety of uh, the 2019-2020 season. Moving forward, he has to miss all of next season, kind of like with Bounty Gate and Sean Payton. They need to they need to get rid of uh, they need to lose first round draft picks for the next couple of seasons, and they need to lose international signing bonus money to sign these young sixteen year old phenoms from the Dominican Republic and the players from Japan and Korea and all that. Absolutely, and and Cuba and wherever else. That's what needs to happen because you can't just take away their World Series. That's not that's not going to happen, okay? Um, but this is 
just an incredible story. It's one of those things where sign stealing has always been a part of Major League Baseball. Yes, traditional sign stealing where you're at second base and you see the signs and you steal them or you're in the dugout and you can see the signs and you can decipher what they are and pick up what they are. But when you bring electronics into this, much like the Red Sox did just before Alex Cora got there with the Apple Watches and everything like that, that is total and utter disgrace. Okay, you are cheating to gain an advantage. Traditional sign stealing, great. This new age of electronics and technology, no way. And I know that Commissioner Rob Manfred did say that the fine has to, I mean, that the punishment has to deter future clubs from ever doing this again. So I believe it will be a heavy, heavy penalty um, that gets put on the Houston Astros. Just not a look, good look for the Astros over the last couple weeks. And then to add even more to this and to add even more to the plate of Commissioner Rob Manford, this just gets wilder and, and, and crazier, right? Is that there, the uh, Major League Baseball now owns Rawlings, okay? There was a lot of talk throughout the postseason, the 2019 postseason, that the Baseballs were not the same they were using throughout the regular season because the home runs were significantly down. There was not as many home runs in the postseason. Well, also reported by The Athletic on Wednesday, Wednesday, Rawlings, who is now owned by Major League Baseball, they were selling souvenir 2019 playoff baseballs at a premium and dubbing them the official 2019 postseason baseball being used in all of the 2019 playoff games. They were fake, guys. Okay, Dr. Meredith Wills, the, the physicist, who revealed how MLB doctored the baseballs in recent years, claims that those supposed 2019 postseason baseballs are likely leftovers from 2018. Oh my God. There's just a lot going on throughout baseball this week. This is a couple of major bombshell stories, and I would not want to be Rob Manford right now because this is putting a big black eye on the game of baseball and it is not good i just hope the punishment fits because in 2017 if you look at it the houston astros won every single game at home against my new york yankees so that's what ticks me off because if they were stealing signs that they had an unfair advantage and the yankees maybe could have been in the world series because they went to a game seven of that uh, alcs and they were oh so close to making the world series where they could have won a, a championship that's the part that bothers me and then you have to determine whether or not they continued to do that in 2018 and 2019 because if they were doing it in 2017 and won a world series why would they stop they lose players to other teams so they might change it up a little bit as john boy on twitter suggested maybe this year you could hear some whistles so i think they were using whistles to decipher signs especially uh you could hear it when araldis chapman was pitching so just a lot going on here uh and yeah i just Wow, 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 wow. But that's all I've got for you guys today. I'm going to end it with On This Date in Sports. November 16th, 1991, Florida State kicker Jerry Thomas missed a potential go-ahead 34-yard field goal attempt at the number one Seminoles, fell to in-state rival number two Miami Hurricanes. This was back when Miami and Florida State were actually uh, good. <laughs> 
yeah, uh, I could say that because Rutgers is the worst team in college football, so I can make fun of your team because it will never be as bad as my team. So this is great. I'm finishing this podcast up. It's about 3.15. I'm going to uh, let you take a listen to On This Day in Sports. Have a good afternoon, guys. Have a good weekend. Have a good rest of your week. Of course, college football playoff uh, rankings will be out on Tuesday. I'll see you guys next week. Enjoy. This will be a 34-yard try, and this is for a win. This could be for a national championship. It's up. Missed it to the right. This chance to win for Florida State. He had enough leg. But he couldn't pull it back inside. It's on the wrong side of the uprights.